Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Tuesday, March 5th, and we're talking consumer goods. I'm your host, Jason Moser. Joining me in the studio via Skype is Asit Sharma. Asit, good to see you again. How's everything? Everything's great on my end. Had a really chilly morning here in Raleigh, so I'm looking for a really hot discussion today <laughs> to, to warm up these old bones. Well, I think we have a couple of things that should warm you up. Uh, today's show, we're going to dig into Levi Strauss's decision to make another go of it as a publicly traded company. Uh, but first, we're actually going to talk about another well-known and already publicly traded retailer, that's considering uh, breaking up with itself. Uh, yeah, we're talking about Gap. Gap, the retailer known for brands like Gap and Old Navy, Banana Republic, and Athleta, has decided to spin off the Old Navy business and become two separate companies. Uh, late last week, I said we got a tweet from a listener at Death Strip Mall. It's a pretty cool tag, I gotta say. Uh, but but he asked, he said, "Can you help me understand how Gap creates value for itself by spinning off Old Navy?" Won't Gap be less valuable without one of its best assets? And, you know, I could have gone into the weeds last week, Asset, and answered that question. But you know what? Hey, listen, man, I'm going to call him out on this and say, no, you got to wait and listen to the show. And that's what we're doing. So, Asset, let's get this conversation started. I mean, there's a lot to unpack here, but generally speaking, we're looking at Gap becoming two companies. One of them will be Old Navy. The other one will be everything else. Uh, go into a little bit of the weeds here for us. Tell us what this deal is about and what were your initial reactions. Yeah, sure, Jason. And that was so great to see on Twitter last week because I was already interested in that topic. And um, it sort of set the stage for this exciting convo. So let's jump right into the weeds. Um, this is actually going to be a spinoff of the uh, traditional assets. So, the Gap brand, Banana Republic, Athleta, Intermix, and a newer brand called Hill City Brands, which is, think of it as sort of a sustainable, they call it technical, uh, sustainable menswear. we can talk about that in a little bit. But all of these brands are going to actually be the ones that are spun off into a as-yet-unnamed company. And together, these brands have annual sales of almost $9 bucks. Old Navy will actually be uh, the remaining standalone company, and it's got annual sales of about $8 billion. Now, this is going to take some time to consummate. The uh, company expects the transaction to happen in 2020. It will be a tax-free distribution of shares, as these spinoffs often are. And the interesting thing is that current share shareholders of Gap will get one share of the new company uh, for every share that they own. So, you basically have a twofer going on here. And we'll, we'll get into that in a moment. As for leadership, Art Peck, who is currently the CEO of Gap Incorporated, is going to lead the new company. He's going to lead the spinoff. And Sonial Single, is, who is current president of Old Navy, will remain now as CEO and president, obviously, of the newly uh, publicly traded Old Navy. So I wanted to, before flipping this back to you, uh, just to give an overview to listeners of what the company says its rationale <coughs> Uh, for this split up is. And they basically have four bullet points they issued. I'm going to sort of read through these um, nearly verbatim, not totally verbatim, but uh, here they go. So, separation creates two independent companies with sharpened strategic focus and operating structure. The second point is that this spinoff will enable each company to capitalize on their respective unique business models, growth plans, and customer bases. 
Third, um, compelling and distinct financial profiles, tailored operating priorities, and unique capital allocation strategies. And what that last point means is basically each company can then decide if it wants to take on some more debt or you know, perhaps um, raise some equity through new share offerings and allocate that into whatever kinds of investments they see fit. And finally, um, this better positions the two new companies to create significant value for customers and shareholders and opportunities for employees. So there you have it, Jason. This is sort of the, the details of the deal and the stated reasons for it. Um, curious on your thoughts. Yeah, so I mean, I, I look at these. This is certainly not the first time something like this has happened. We see it happen frequently. Sometimes it's seemingly uh, two businesses that are very similar splitting themselves up. Sometimes it's two businesses that aren't necessarily doing the same thing splitting themselves up. And in this case, obviously, it's the former. Uh, so, you know, looking back in history, looking at some companies that have done something like this uh, before, the, the one example that came straight to mind was when Kraft Foods decided to spin out its snacks division, right? And that's where we got Mondelez, and then Kraft went on its own way, and then Kraft and Heinz got together. We all know the story about that at this, at this point in the game, especially if you're a Kraft Heinz shareholder. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, you can look at it on the surface. Big picture, yes, Kraft and Mondelez, both food companies, but, you know, one is a packaged goods uh, company, one is more of a snack company. So they are the same, yet they are different. And I think oftentimes, you can see where businesses that seem somewhat similar on the surface, they do actually require different strategies uh, when you get right down to it. They may require different capital requirements. They may require a different marketing focus. Uh, certainly, they are for different audiences. And so, that's where you could see something like this happen. And I think we would look at, at Gap and say, well, they are all clothing companies, but they're not necessarily all the same, right? I mean, Old Navy stands out among all of those brands as the value offering, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in fact, you know, the retail strategy is different as well. While most of the Gap outlets traditionally have been found in malls, Old Navy is located closer to big box stores yeah. and is not quite as embedded in the leases, so they have a little more flexibility there. And if you look at some of these new brands, uh, like the Hill City brands, Athleta, these are geared towards a slightly higher um, value customer, um, and they lend themselves to you know, the new retail, which is selling this omni-channel strategy, selling online, um, appealing to millennials' purchasing preferences. So the old assets, the gap assets, plus these new brands certainly have a you know distinct strategy that's different than Old Navy. But Old Navy, you know, it's the um, growth vehicle has been the growth vehicle that has kept Gap uh, sort of a viable investment over the last 10-year period. Now, we should say, if you're holding shares of Gap, you know that over the last five years, it's actually lost about 35%. Yeah. And for me, this becomes you know, a question of, of what is the potential for splitting up. I've got some thoughts on these two companies separately, but I want to throw out another example before I do that, which is um, the split that eBay uh, engendered when it spun off PayPal. You had something similar going on in that uh, both were part of this whole which formed a marketplace company. PayPal was responsible for the payments, and it was a sort of stepchild of the company, uh, took care of payments in the marketplace, and made some forays into other businesses. So eBay said, look, you know, to 
to really compete with some of these other online retailers, we probably should focus management on that marketplace and other opportunities. And to realize the potential of payments, we ought to spin off PayPal. Now, interestingly, it was the same type of transaction, tax-free distribution. If you held a share of eBay, you got a share of PayPal. And we all know what's happened to PayPal since it's gained about, I think, 150% rough numbers at the same time that eBay, since that July 2015 uh, spinoff, has gained about 35%. So you would have had appreciation with both. The question becomes, um, in investing, you have earnings, you have cash flows that you generate, and you have the market's perception of those cash flows mm-hmm. and your ability to generate those cash flows. And PayPal's potential is only uncovered when a dedicated management team could focus on that and go off to the races. And in the same way, maybe we should say eBay has grown slightly. It's it's a slower growth company. So, um, you know, having said that, I, I do want to talk in a moment about how the two companies look differently. But I don't know. Do, I know you're you're a. Let me put it this way: you're a warrior on cash, Jason. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, yeah I, I, I maybe subscribe. hyperbolic here, but but parallels any that you see. I subscribe a little bit more to the cashless view of society. Um, I mean, yeah, <laughs> I, I I like the the eBay example because I think you see. Uh, two companies there that on their own. I mean, I you know eBay. I th- eBay I think probably would drag down PayPal if they were still together. It gave PayPal a chance to go about its own way, and eBay is still done okay. I mean, you look at the others. The other example that we talked about, Kraft and Mondelez. I mean, if you look since that split, um, I mean, Mondelez has actually worked out pretty well for investors thus far. I mean, who would have figured? We all we all like our snacks, right? <laughs> I said, I mean, uh, but Kraft has had a little bit of a tougher go of it. And you know you could you could attribute that probably to uh, management and uh, pursuing that Heinz strategy, and we've seen what happened recently with the Kraft Heinz uh, right down there, and, and Warren Buffett and 3G Capitals. So, I mean, there, it's it's not to say that it will always work out well for one and not so well for the other, or or well for both. I mean, it just gives each brand or each company the opportunity to go pursue their own strategy. I, you know, I think when I look at retail, when I look at fashion in general, I mean, I understand. Listen, I'm not the most fashionable guy in the world, right? I think I have the sar- sartorial sensibilities of maybe my dogs at home. Uh, but with that said, I am a dad, and we've given a lot of money to Old Old Navy through the years. I mean, Old Navy has been a great place to shop for uh, kids' clothes, and, and, and you know, hey, I mean, I've got a few of those shirts in my drawer too. So I'd probably lean a little bit more to the Old Navy side, just because that's what I know. Um, but with that said, giving each business their own focus could really unlock value on both ends of both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, that's such a fascinating point you just brought up that you're a dad and, and you've given your share of dollars to Old Navy. Um, so I protect this like a trade secret. Uh, my age, I'm um, I'm forty something. Let's <laughs> yeah. leave it at that. I'll tell Me you what side of forty I'm <laughs> we on. We won't go but, any further. <laughs> but you know, I grew up. Uh, you know, as, when I was a teen, there was a time in life where you went to the mall, to the Gap, and and Banana Republic also, and you know, if you had a little extra cash, you got some an upgrade on your clothing uh, versus your standard Levi's or, or whatever else you could afford. And it had a certain cachet as you've, um, you know, as I progressed, obviously I've, I've seen both sides of that as well. The thing, so to get to, um, our, our question on Twitter that I want to really dive into here. Well, if you're taking all, you know, sort of the older assets, the gap banana Republic assets with a few growth brands, um, and spinning that off into a new company, how can that 
particular bucket grow. Uh, so one thing I wanted to point out is that it's going to start with a lower baseline of expectations and it's going to be a slower growth company. Sure. The good good side of that coin is that if they can figure out how to, to jigger some growth, their multiple that the market assigns to them is probably going to increase. So while it's still this whole ball of wax uh, for the next year, um, Gap is cutting down the number of specialty stores it has. It's got about now, it started with 725, I think at the beginning of 2018, cut that down to maybe 650. And it's going to cut that number in half again by closing underperforming stores. Company says that will ding it for about 625 million in revenue, but it'll add $90 million pre-tax to Gap's bottom line. Now, by the time Gap sees that money, it will be in a separate holding company, and that'll have a much greater effect on its P&L than if it was still in this big company, which has almost $17 billion in sales. So that's one really smart way that the company can actually show some growth in the um, part that's being spun off, and that's simply by making some really smart cuts. Um, other you know, strategies they have are to pour more money into brands like Athleta. I was sort of surprised, Jason. I, you know, Since Gap hasn't performed well, I haven't followed it closely for a number of years. I'm surprised that Athleta has grown at a 30% uh, two-year comparable sales clip um, as of this last quarter. That's pretty good. One other thing to note about these newer brands is um, Athleta. I say Athleta. I think you say Athleta. Yeah, I'm not sure which one it is. I I would imagine both are acceptable at this point. Maybe maybe I'll flip between them to be (laughs) fair. But Athleta is a certified B Corp. And if you know anything about B Corps, basically they're a sustainable type of corporation. You have to have um, a sustainable bent, um, be more than just about the bottom line. And that's a cachet for millennial purchasers. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think that uh, the Gap company, Gap Brands, with these newer Brands is going to push that, um, especially their um, online sales. And so there is some earnings potential here for what looks like maybe, you know, the drag on earnings. Yeah. I mean, I guess we'll see. You know, one of the things I always look at with uh, the retail space in general, and I mean, obviously, when we say retail, that is very wide reaching when it comes to fashion in particular. As an investor, I mean, you look at this market and you think, well, really, what are the competitive advantage? The advantages are there any? And I mean, there, I don't know that there really are. Maybe the brand is the biggest competitive advantage a fashion retailer can actually possess. Um, and then obviously they have to maintain that brand. And you know, I think Gap and Banana Republic have have held their own through the years. I'm not sure that they're brands that really warrant. A whole heck of a lot of pricing power going forward, but I do think that the Athleta brand could be that. I think there is something with uh, sort of that athleisure wear. We're seeing that market growing. We're seeing Nike pursuing it a little bit more. Obviously, the success that Lululemon has had. I know that Under Armour is trying to uh, test those waters as well. So I think there is the opportunity there, and I think that would probably be the brand that I would be most excited about at this point. Um, Old Navy is always going to be a value offering, and that's not to say that's a bad thing, but you have to remember how that plays out on the bottom line. So they're probably not going to be growing their top lines either, either company uh, at extraordinary rates. But but I do think that splitting them up gives them a chance to focus on what they do well, right size their cost structure, streamline the businesses, um, and, and I think as we always say with retail, I mean these to me at least are not buy to hold investments. They are really. 
you need to buy these retailers when the pessimism is high, the stocks are cheap, and you need to have you need to have a clear path towards why that changes. And if you can have a thesis that really tells why you think that that narrative changes, then you could realize uh, you know potentially a value investment there, where you you buy it at a good price and you sell out at a at a, at a, at a good price as well. But Definitely a, a difficult market to, to get. I mean, I, I certainly don't profess to be a market timer by any stretch, and and I don't think you do either. Yeah, oh, no, not at all. <laughs> so, last point I want to throw in about Old Navy. So, let's look at that possible scenario of these stocks splitting up, and maybe we get a market downturn, uh, pessimism is running high, as you say, and you're looking to pick up Old Navy. What would be your reason to buy into this stock? If, if you look at GAP's current financials, it has the greatest comparable uh, sales growth of any brand in the company, but that's pretty meager. It's like usually 3% or 5% in mm-hmm. a quarter. Um, however, when you put these companies in different buckets, they each have a fairly decent balance sheet that's not that encumbered. And the potential for Old Navy really is maybe in some unit growth, some smaller stores. They've looked at this in the past and have had decent expansion, but being part of this multi-brand animal the resources haven't really been there for Old Navy to expand in any significant way. So one lever they could pull is just a little bit faster unit expansion because they still profess to feel underpenetrated in the value sector. So that might be some reasoning investors you can employ if you do see, as Jason's pointing out, uh, as we see all the time with, with retail stocks, if it happens to get to a point where it looks attractive to you, that might be your rationale to buy, pick up a few shares. Okay, one last question. We'll wrap this up, and this is a bit of a hypothetical, but I'd be interested in your answer here. You, Asit Sharma, will be the CEO of one of these two businesses. You get to choose. Which one are you choosing and why? Interesting question, because the CEO uh, of the current company made a point in the uh, last earnings call just last week to say, Oh, you know, I'm I'm going with the old assets. I'm going to run Gap and these other brands. But oh, I I love Old Navy just as much. And this I, this was a hard decision for me. He went out of his I, way. I don't uh, know if it Pat, was. <laughs> it's a very diplomatic guy. But you and I don't have to be so diplomatic. I'm going to give um, sort of a cr- contrarian answer to maybe what you'd expect, which I'm actually going to go with um, the Old Navy brand. It's got limited potential in terms of um, ever growing at that fast a clip. And then actually the, the potential is, as you point out, might be in the Gap brands with Athleta um, and Hill City brands. At least those can grow with online sales. But I like this idea that Old Navy um, isn't as well represented. I would go out, I'd cut some more costs, I'd do another bond offering, I might have a secondary stock offering in a year, and I would plow into as much as I think the market could bear. And then I would trumpet that to shareholders every quarter. I'd focus them <laughs> on unit growth, not on those comps that are still 3 to 5%. So that would be my strategy. It's not a very risky strategy. There's some obvious value there to unlock. I don't have the chops as a CEO to go in and grow the fashionable brands um, and explore those sort of online strategies that are so necessary to compete today. But let me flip the question back to you, my friend, Jason Moser. Investor extraordinaire, consummate dad, um, really smart guy. You have a choice, and you have to choose which which door is it. 
Uh, well, I mean, either from an investing perspective or from a CEO perspective, I think I'm going Old Navy either way. I agree with you. I think there is a consistency there that would be a lot easier to uh, continue with moving forward. And I think that Old Navy, through the years, has done a very good job of marrying a good brand recognition. Okay, I think there is some brand equity there with the value offering that it proposes. And and you know, we we see these commercials constantly. I mean, they've done a great job of marketing that name through the years. I think that would be a fun one to keep that ball rolling. But we'll see. You'll we'll we'll see. I mean, uh, I think what we're talking about 2020 when this actually plays out. So, uh you still have some time and I'm sure there will be an arbitrage player too out there being proposed our way as well. Let's flip Absolutely. it over a little bit here and talk about Levi's. This is a company that uh given given your age and my age, I think we grew up in the same time. This is a brand that you and I are very familiar with. Um, you know, I got a, I got a couple of pairs of Levi's jeans at home still. I mean, it's when sure. I think of jeans, I think of Levi's. I mean, that really is the only brand of jeans I will buy. Um, and, and I've been doing that for 40 some odd years, let's just say. Uh, but, you know, we're talking about Levi's looking at giving it another run as a public company. Um, what what why do you think that is? I mean, what's your take on this business? Is it, is it even worth us looking at as investors? I think it might be. Uh, the company been around since the 1850s, and Man. it started its jeans business in the 1870s. Um, has done very well over the centuries, <laughs> the crossing yeah. of centuries. So this is a company that's got a tremendous amount of brand equity. It was a public company between 1971 and 1985. Um, but the controlling shareholders, uh, the family who own most of the shares, pulled it off the markets in the 80s. And really, the company slumped through a, a number of factors. Tastes were changing, but uh, management did not have a cohesive strategy uh, to run the company. Um, but fortune started to turn around, interestingly enough, in around, I guess, 2011. And this is when Levi's brought in a Procter & Gamble executive um, which, you know, Procter & Gamble is an amazing uh, learning laboratory for anyone in the consumer retail business. So you really get a uh, deep education in how to market a brand, how to manage costs, supply chains, etc. And so they hired this CEO, Chip Berg, in 2011. And since then, sales have rebounded. They had reached the 4 to $5 million level after nearly hitting $10 million. Uh, since Chip has taken over. Sales have grown again. They were uh, 5.6 billion last year, which represented a 14% improvement over the prior year. So it is interesting, and we should mention though the um, the jeans business is getting hot and crowded. Um, I was again reading the uh, conference call transcript from Gap from last week, and the CEO said, "Hey, we are going to lead with denim, denim in uh, the Gap brand. We've always done that, and we're going to continue to to do that." The Wrangler and Lee Jeans business that's owned by a company called VF Corp, which is sort of um, next door to me in Greensboro, North Carolina, they are spinning off their jeans business, which has just under $2 billion in sales, so that that business can compete more in the marketplace. Um, I think this is an interesting company to look at because it's an iconic brand and because the CEO has really um, changed a lot of the culture of the company. It's a more focused company now, uh, more in tune with contemporary marketing. Uh, he's expanded their global footprint. Um, he's also cut a lot of costs. Interestingly enough, Levi's doesn't need the money. And I think, Jason, uh, a couple of shows 
ago, you and I were talking about our preference for companies. I guess this was the, the Beyond Meat episode yeah. when they go public that they're not struggling for cash. And this is certainly the case here. Uh, Levi's has a pretty solid balance sheet. Its placeholder uh, IPO filing says it's going to raise $100 million, but that's just a placeholder number. Most estimates I've seen say they're going to raise between $600 and $800 million, which they don't have an immediate need for. And that signals to me they want to expand more um, globally. They want to expand more into the retail stores they've built. That footprint is one where they can control their product, control the distribution, and make a higher margin. So those are a few interesting um nuggets you know, sprinkled through the S1 that make me want to look into this company once it goes public. What are your thoughts on, on Levi's as an investment? Yeah, I mean, I, you, you, know, you and I look at the, the use of the proceeds, I think, uh, immediately when we go through those S1s, and, it, and it's nice to see that they don't need the money to pay down debt. I mean, they have, I, I think, what, you know, about $1 billion in debt on the balance sheet, but it's easily serviceable from the operating earnings that they're bringing in, it seems. And, um, and so, it is, it is a, there's a lot of nostalgia there for me that makes me want to take a closer look, just because I've known the brand for so long. You know, I fall back to the lessons learned in retail investments, and again, I have to remember to check myself uh, uh, before before getting too, um, you know, before getting too attached. But uh, it is it is one that I would like to learn more about at least and see what the strategy is going forward. Because uh, you know, it is I, I think that it is a brand that still resonates uh, not only very well here domestically, but clearly globally. I mean, they are. Uh, pushing a lot of revenue through that model every year, and I think it is the type of company that is adopting very well in, in a direct-to-consumer world. Um, so, so yeah, we'll 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 be watching that one um, certainly as it comes out, and it will be yet another opportunity out there for investors to consider. Uh, I want to read an email today uh, that we got from a listener. Before I do that, I wanted to also make a note here. Uh, a lot of folks out there may note that today Target. Earnings came out, and you know we're not talking about Target today on this show. Clearly, it's in our purview, so to speak. But you know what? You can get that information over on Market Foolery today. So just go over to that podcast app you have on your phone, click on today's episode of Market Foolery, and let Chris, uh, let Chris Hill and, uh, and and Abby Mallon t- tell you all about uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly of Target's quarter. I'm uh, going to read an email here real quick from Ben Hargis and I just I had to read this on today's show because it goes back to a show that you and I did recently Asset and Ben says hi industry focused team I just listened to the Beyond Meat episode I'm a little behind and I thought it was very interesting I can imagine increasing demand for this kind of food in the near future I'm sure I'm not the first one to think of this, but it seems like the protein producers might be a good way to invest in plant-based food products, since any company like Beyond Meat will depend on them. Anyway, thanks for the good work you guys do. I discovered Motley Fool Podcast about four years ago, joined Stock Advisor and Rule Breakers about three years ago, and it's changed the way I approach investing and company research. And he says here, I said, as an example, I can't believe I'm thinking about pea protein producers. (laughs) Keep it up. Thanks, Ben Hargis. Ben, thanks so much for the email. Austin and I had a lot of fun doing that show. And I'm glad to know that we are having such an impact on the way you do your research. And it's a great point. One investing idea can breed so many uh, so many new ones. You think about all of the companies that are involved with that value chain, uh, all sorts of opportunities upstream and downstream. So, keep up the great work, Ben, and thanks for listening. Um, okay, Asit, we want to wrap this week up here, giving our listeners a couple of stocks to keep their eyes on. Uh, what is one stock you've got your eye on these days? 
I am looking closely at Wayfair. I just um, added that to my Motley Fool uh, Caps collection. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Caps, it's an online stock investing game. And check it out. It's a really great way to learn because people like Jason will often uh, put pitches, knowledgeable people who you respect, um, and you can see why a person wants to buy a particular stock or why they think it's a thumbs down that uh, might go down in, uh, versus the S&P. So I love playing caps, and I added Wayfair. This is the online retailing furniture company. Uh, longtime listeners may remember we talked about this on a show, uh, feels like a couple of years ago now, um, and what an interesting concept it is because Wayfair is uh, trying to basically compete against companies like Amazon, but just in the furniture market for now. And it's doing so by just going after as much market share as it can. So here's my pitch. I really like Wayfair, even after a recent earnings uh, stock has shot up to all-time highs. It's expanding its European logistics network uh, and concentrating on Germany. Now, you won't see many companies do this. When you hear CEOs talk about global expansion, they're like, we're going in China. (laughs) We're going in Europe. We're going in Africa. (laughs) And yeah, we're going into Latin America, folks. I really like Wayfair's approach. They are concentrating on Germany, which has a total addressable market that's even bigger than Canada, which is the second market the, the company entered. They're developing a true platform for sellers, that is furniture wholesalers and manufacturers, which actually gives data back uh, to the sellers and lets them know which pieces uh, you know, consumers preferred. And this is hard to do in the furniture business, but they have a distribution logistics network that'll take a piece of furniture from basically the manufacturer's door all the way to your living room. And it's a proprietary network, has two components. One is called Castlegate, that's more their logistics arm, and WDN, which is their last mile delivery network. Um, They are doubling down on these facilities in the U.S. in major metropolitan areas this year, grabbing as much market share as possible. Yes, they're running at losses, (laughs) but this is sort of an Amazon-like company. Uh, They will have time in uh, the future to pull back a little bit if they need to and and show some profit. I am a terrible market timer. (laughs) It is trading at an all-time high, but I like when I see a stock that is really going after and conquering a market, a company that's doing that. Rather than try to time it, I, I like to buy it and just ignore the volatility. Now, folks, please don't send me tweets <laughs> like next week or the week after. Hey, Asit, mm. I bought Wayfair at 150. It's at 120. What do I do? I, I won't know what to tell you. I'll probably tell you. Just hold, hold and uh, ignore the volatility. That's my two, maybe three-minute pitch. There yeah. you go. Well, hey, listen, Wayfair, that's a talk about businesses that have gotten a few of my dollars. Wayfair is another one. And awesome. I tell you, I like it too. I mean, it is that retail company in this day and age. It all really is just a network. I mean, they don't carry any inventory on that balance sheet, and it gives them an opportunity really just to connect buyers and sellers. So that's a good one. I'm going to go a little bit more the traditional uh, route this week. Costco has earnings coming out on Thursday, uh, the 7th, and that is before the market opens. You know, we were in Austin, Texas this past week. At a full event. And I got to talk a lot about businesses like Costco and Amazon and Wayfair. Um, and, and it's neat to see how Costco is still doing so well as a traditional retailer in in what is becoming very quickly an e-commerce world. But you know, it, it's it's a membership model and the focus on really just making sure they give their customers a big wide selection and the lowest prices possible. It seems 
to still resonate in this day and age. It has a very loyal uh, base of members that just keep re-upping. And if you remember, they did increase that membership price uh, almost a couple of years ago, back in 2017. And and those increases take about two years to fully uh, run their way through the books. So, you know, I kind of wonder if we won't hear in the next call or two Maybe they're pondering perhaps another small little uh, membership fee raise because they've proven they can do that and members won't even really bat an eye because they get so much value from it. But a well-managed business, one that has done very well for a lot of our investors through the years here, uh, that's the one I'll be looking at this week. So, looks like we've got ourselves set up here and looking forward to the next time we get to do this, Asit. Awesome. Looking forward to it, Jason. Thanks, everyone. All righty. And as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So, don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Asit Sharma, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.